This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Reward versus incentive in game design. Restoring Europe's lost Ruritanias. Kitchen Minimaxing. And the Great Enlightened Society of Oculists. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. By the sound of Mountain Dews being popped open, we can tell that we are once more in the gaming hut. And, uh, Robin, you are thinking about game design for some odd reason, perhaps connected to your career. So what uh, specific uh, furnishing of the gaming hut do you wish to draw our attention to today? So I thought I would highlight an issue that I've been thinking of a bit lately and see where that takes us. And that issue is the distinction between reward and incentive in game design. And I would like to draw the distinction as follows. Often, people who are analyzing how a set of rules work in order to play it or in preparation for playing it, look at what the incentives are that the rule system offers them to engage in particular behavior. And that behavior can occur, for example, during character generation. So in D&D or another very crunchy uh, system that rewards a lot of system mastery, you have an incentive to not only memorize the rules, but while creating a character, to look for all of the maximal values as you select all of the crunchy bits for your character. And that incentive results in presumably some sort of advantage during play, although it's sometimes a kind of a curious advantage because it's an advantage that you have over other players who you are putatively cooperating with. And so sometimes if you're looking at a a set of incentives, you want to be very calculating and figure out, you know, how the math works and how the benefits go. And in an extreme form, this thought process becomes dysfunctional insofar as certain uh, players enjoy sort of breaking the game and looking for the undesigned in incentives that they can find and exploit, and that they get as much fun out of proving a game design broken as they would by enjoying playing that game. The other side of things, though, is the the question of reward, in that when you actually look at what people do in play, often the mechanisms that promote particular behavior are not necessarily those really calculating uh, questions of math and what's the best a decision to make here and how to you know play the whole game theory aspect of it, but they are emotional rewards. So, for example, in Drama System, uh, which of course is a system I'm thinking about a lot because I've designed it and am now getting out into the world, uh, people have been reading the uh, playtest draft that they got as part of the Kickstarter and are looking at the token economy of the drama scenes and wondering how the incentives work in there. And there are incentives built into that game where you get a reward, various additional power over other players or over the narrative by accumulating more drama tokens than other people have. 
But it is also, and I would say primarily, a reward system because what it just the mere fact that you exchange a token from one person to another, that I have to give you a token from my pile once I've accumulated it, has an emotional impact that affects everyone around the table and not just the people who approach a game system from a really calculating mathematical point of view. So that sometimes there are things that on paper look as though they will not offer a huge incentive but in fact offer a big reward because of the emotional impact of the actions that they encourage you to partake in. Another example would be the tagline system, which you find in Dying Earth and uh, in Skullduggery and will reappear in the Guy and Reach game, where you get uh, points that you can use for various things in the narrative. You get chips for weaving lines of dialogue into the storyline. Now, to me as a designer, what is not important is at the end of the game afterwards, if you figured that you got the most out of the points you accumulated, but the behavior that it encourages of using those lines and being excited when you get a lot of uh, tokens for using a line really well and being a little disappointed with yourself when you don't use a line so well and are, uh, you know, only get the minimum amount. So as a designer, I'm often looking to promote a sense of reward, and that's more important to me than incentive, because only a small subset of players around any given table will be focused on incentive, and everyone, whether they admit it or not, whether they're aware of it or not, are focused on reward. Well, I think that to an extent you are sort of got your thumb on the scale there by defining incentive such in such a way that it only applies to one player and reward in such a way that it applies to the, the play group as a whole and to the shared experience. I mean, by that definition, I, th I think pretty much any functional game mechanic should be one that aims at the whole play experience as opposed to the individual player, except possibly character generation. And so uh, I, I think that there may be a little bit of, uh, of a rhetorical monkey that you've slipped into the uh, woodpile here. The other thing that I would uh, take uh, note of is that incentive and reward, to my way of thinking, describe whether or not the game system is pushing you into something or pulling you into something, right? So an incentive might be that um, if you don't do such and such a thing, you're going to get hosed, right? If you don't, you know, min-max your strength and your constitution, you're going to get, you know, pounded on in combat. So something uh, like in Gumshoe, where if you don't build your athletics over eight, you're going to be just immensely more vulnerable uh, in combat. Whereas a reward would be something that attempts to uh, draw a behavior out of you, and that's where something like your tagline mechanic or where some of the uh, 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 systems in Gumshoe, in uh, Nice Black Agents, or in uh, Esoteric Factbook, where you, uh, you, you do a bit of color narration and you get a, a skill refresh, or you're rewarded for thinking of something clever to do with your investigative ability during a fight scene or a chase, and so you get a, a reward for that. I think that those, I mean, I, I, that might be a little more productive because you could certainly make an argument that both incentives and rewards have a place in game design, whereas the way that you've defined it, an incentive is almost something to be designed out of a game because ideally what you want is to be um, uh, creating a system in which everyone's actions are driven to improve communal gameplay, because if people want to play solitaire, that's why the good Lord put computer games in the world. Well, I'm not sure, first of all, if it's a distinction between communal play and between uh, reward. Because reward, 
uh, can work in a, in a sort of a PVP fashion, right? That you're getting something at the table uh, in both the cases of drama system and uh, the tagline that other people are not getting. It, it induces a sense of uh, competition in order to create the uh, conflict and energy that results in a communal experience. And I think you're, what I'm hearing in your definition is that you're defining uh, reward as carrot and incentive as stick. So that if you fail to take particular uh, feats in uh, 3E, or if, as you mentioned, you fail to uh, have an athletics over 8 if you don't want to get hit a lot, that's uh, a negative incentive. That's a, uh, you know, nice character sheet you've got there. Shime if something happened to it, right? Um, so I'm not sure that, uh, at least for me, the, the distinction that I'm interested in is that clear cut between one being a carrot and the other being a stick. Well, I guess uh, what I'm what I'm uh, saying is that I am perhaps not then focused on where you would see the positive aspects of an incentive uh, in game design, or are there any? Well, an incentive, for example, can be positive in the sense that if you know the right combination of feats to take, you can blow away the opposition and you get to cleave them with your axe, and you are more effective at cleaving people with your axe than uh, someone else might be, uh, whereas, and that uh, combines a sense of emotional reward, but you have to go through a sort of a, a calculating process to get that. And uh, I, insofar as that would be a negative, it would be negative at the table to the other guy who wants to have a character that's that effective, but is unable to manipulate the system to the degree to accomplish that. No, I, I, was, I was asking more, how is it a positive? I mean, if 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 you're using you know incentive and reward as these two you know types of game design as opposed to two poles of uh, reward, um, uh, uh, give me some positive uh, aspects of the of the incentive as you would have it. Why would we put them in in the first place? In part, I think that we put them in because we like mathematical constructs and we know that players like mathematical constructs, and we're trying to uh, please people who enjoy playing with those details. And I don't think that incentive is necessarily uh, bad so much as it is overemphasized in our thinking and that we are not always thinking about what behavior that creates at the at the game table. So I guess maybe what I'm thinking of as uh, incentive may be sort of a more a preparatory thing or a tactic that you uh, decide to employ Whereas reward is more, or more something that works on the subconscious or, or emotional level. Okay. I mean, those are, uh, the, the, that's certainly another uh, useful uh, binary, I think, to examine when you're talking about game design. I mean, what's, what's an intellectual uh, tactical reward and what is a emotional or communal or, or sort of uh, spirit of the game type uh, reward? And of course, something can be both. Uh, your great cleave example, if that's an incentive. That's also a reward if the game's job is to make uh, things feel like Conan the Barbarian. Then, you know, everyone wants to see someone great cleave, even if it's not them, because otherwise then they don't feel like they're playing the, 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 the drawing on the cover of the box. Right. Um, and I think one of the issues here is, I think, as, as I mentioned again, the uh, difference between the way that we analyze a game after having played it and the experience of playing it at the table. And that's why it's very important as a designer to focus uh, not only on uh, people's 
responses to, well, I don't think this worked or this was uh, mechanically uh, a value for whatever a number of points that you spend on it, but also to get a sense of the uh, emotional impression of what's going on, what's going on at the table. And that's something that you can do really well with your own in-house testing group and is much more challenging to get from uh, distant play testers. And so you have to be able to kind of read between the lines and uh, in a way sort of intuit what it is that people are uh, getting emotionally out of the experience or also getting a sense of why uh, an experience failed and did it fail for the reasons that you are getting in the playtest report or was there some other failure of buy-in that occurred before then. Um, I'm sure you've also had the experience with playtesters where there's usually, you know, one group that just uh, at least one group that totally loves it and doesn't have much feedback for you beyond that. And another group that basically the whole thing failed right from the get-go. And often that failure is a failure to engage with the premise that the, uh, it may be that that group would just have never enjoyed that game at all. Or it may be that there was some, something that went wrong in the session, uh, as you know, sessions, even of, uh, ongoing games sometimes fail midway through that uh, fell apart due to some little uh, bit of presentation. One sentence that you wrote could uh, cause that. A uh, esoterist adventure that is yet to be published, I know, failed because uh, there was sort of a throwaway line about the importance of maintaining your cover as an agent in this area. And it just sort of assumed in the original text that the players would know how to counter that and uh, use their various interpersonal abilities and their uh, preparedness to just continue to overcome that obstacle through the course of the adventure as they would in any standard esoteric game. But there was just something in the wording of that one sentence that caused one group to focus entirely on the issue of how difficult it is to maintain your cover and how they had no resources to maintain their covers and therefore their experience of that adventure completely failed. It's like if you describe the place that the haunted house adventure takes place in as hot and and damp, and then everyone suddenly gets con uh, concerned that they're you know losing constitution points and don't have enough uh, hydration going on or something. Right. And so part of the experience of design, even beyond the question of uh, reward and incentive, or sort of zooming out to that to the core point, is that the what you think you're going to get out of a game when you're reading it analytically is very different than what you get out of a game when you sit down and, and play it, uh, especially when you're playing it with a group of people who are at various points on the continuum between analytical and intuitive. I, I think any good playtest group is worth their weight in rubies, but it would be nice to be able to at least get a uh, a group that does not want to analyze the mechanics, but wants to analyze the play feel. In in general, um, when I'm when I'm do, uh, doing a play test fairly early in the in the thing, it's not so much a pragmatic functionality. It's it, it's more of a holistic functionality. I want to know is the game holding together as a, as an entire experience, is, or is some aspect of the of the felt experience um, just uh, just lying there inert on the page and making people sort of vamp around it. I mean, plenty of, of great games have now vamp around this sections, but I think as a designer, you know, in the 21st century, our job is to minimize the exposure to that, or at least to, 
you know, not make it a part of core gameplay. Yeah, co-designer syndrome when you're getting playtest feedback is really tricky because, first of all, the sorts of people who are willing to volunteer to playtest a new game want to feel in a way that they are collaborating with you and they are by definition interested in new rules and willing to put themselves through the experience of playing a game which may not work yet. But the difficulty with that is that even if you successfully identify a problem that is actually a global problem and not necessarily just a problem with this one group dynamic, that almost invariably when a bit of playtest feedback includes a proposed solution on how to deal with that, that that proposed solution does not work, that it either uh, bends away from the basic design goals that you're going for, or it fails to take into account all of the other moving parts that the game engages with. And if you know a game design from the inside, because you've been working on it for a long time, the process of finding a fix to a problem is nine times out of ten comparatively trivial, but the difficulty of responding to a sort of inchoate uh, concern or uh, is is the bigger challenge, and that the specific solutions that are proposed to you often in playtest are usually things that are are misleading at best. Pretty much, as, assuming that the person is not a complete slouch, any playtest feedback is good playtest feedback, even co-designer uh, syndrome feedback, as you as you name it. Uh, aptly. But I, I'm just saying that I think, you know, for whatever reason, we wind up a little oversupplied with that, or at least I do in my experience, as opposed to uh, the other kind. And maybe you're right that that other kind is so hard to quantify and so hard to put down in words that you can't really sort of, you know, describe it any more than you can describe, you know, a, a Louis Armstrong solo you know, capably. It's also related just to focus group syndrome, right? It goes far beyond playtesting is that if you sit a bunch of people in a room and ask them to analyze their feelings about a product or service or piece of entertainment, that the things they come up with to say uh, may not apply simply because they're using the analytical part of their brains uh, when what you're really looking for is someone's emotional response to something and that the uh, way that they try to articulate from their emotional response to an intellectual statement that somebody else can interpret, there's much that can go awry there. And then there's the whole, you know, primate interaction mechanical problem of not just focus groups, but role-playing. And, you know, it's a miracle, uh, as Robert Benchley said, of film that any of it ever gets done, uh, given the number of uh, things that can go wrong. So uh, I, I think that to sort of swing it back around briefly to the question of design goals that we're sort of in a bit of a cleft stick. And on the one hand, I guess we're lucky because so little has been charted that any real discovery we make is, is going to be sort of category making. But uh, we're in a position where the kinds of questions we're asking can barely even be formulated. And the kinds of mechanical solutions that we're looking for, you know, if we, if we knew what they were, we'd do them every time. And we're, we're getting sort of a vague outline, but it's like, uh, you know, the guy's mapping the coast of North America in the 16th century. You sort of have an idea of Florida's there, and maybe Newfoundland is there, but everything in between, I don't know, it could, could go this way, could go that way. And so we, you know, we try things, and one of the great things about the, the indie game explosion is that 
people build whole games around basically single mechanics or single clusters of good mechanical ideas or single clusters of good seeming mechanical ideas. And then you can go and get a fairly uh, solid amount of uh, feedback, both in the focused mutual designer uh, back scratch and also in the sort of sense of enthusiasm. You know, what kind of games do people want to play with those things and what kind of experiences do they have and what what tone of voice do they use when they when they post about it? And you you can sort of pull together notions of what kind of things start, starts to work. So I'm I guess a little bit uh, optimistic that we can you know approach uh, asymptotically at least um, a map of the sort of um, uh, incentives that that you're talking about. Right, and I guess basically if there's a a message emanating from the gaming hut this week, it's that I would encourage people to think. Uh, not only about the mathematical incentives, uh, which are important, but also the emotional rewards that are at play in any game experience, because those two can help you figure out how to have fun. Because, of course, fun is not a formula. It's an emotional response. Right. And like uh, music or art, it can be expressed with formulas. So there you go. And on that uh, formulaic note, we will formulaically close up the gaming hut. Once more, it is time to ask Ken and Robin. And this week, Brett Evil asks, Nothing buckles a swash like a Ruritanian kingdom in the middle of Europe, but in fact, those have been pretty thin on the ground since 1866. Liechtenstein is just too small a postage stamp, and there's something inappropriate about its uniqueness and anomalousness. So, what can you do to history to get a plethora of gastroukish states in Middle Europe around 1890 to 1910 while retaining as recognizable a 19th century as possible. Well, um, he uh, sort of touches on this when he says things like Liechtenstein and 1890 to 1910 and 1866, which of course is the date uh, pretty much of the uh, unification of uh, most of Germany under the Prussian uh, kingdom. I think that you can probably go back a little bit farther to uh, something like uh, the uh, 1848 revolutions or even to the Congress of Vienna that uh, ends the Napoleonic Wars. The basic problem being that as you develop national sentiment in uh, what certainly what we understand in the 19th and 20th century as national sentiment, you start to increase the size of the state expressing that sentiment. And this happened in France in the 15th century, and it is slowly happening in uh, the Balkans now, uh, as they are figuring out what is too big a state to express uh, what they feel as national sentiment, in much the same way that the French monarchy fell apart uh, for a while there, uh, almost completely in the 15th century. But the um, but but the question is, it, national sentiment is a fairly tough thing to uh, to tamp down, certainly in Germany, as uh, Europe has found to its cost time and again. But I think that something that is a uh, a halfway house solution, uh, perhaps the uh, uh, continuation of the of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which uh, was dissolved by Napoleon in 1806. If you stop Napoleon at Austerlitz, and you still have Napoleon, you still have a Napoleonic War, but 
the part where he marches into Central and Eastern Europe and starts uh, dumping people out of their throne and, and rationalizing things so that he can um, uh, enforce the continental system of trade that he wanted to do. I think that that might be the simplest way to keep that great patchwork of Ruritanias and Graustarks and uh, Schleswigs and Holsteins uh, at least rattling along for another 30, 40 years, which is what uh, Brett seems to ask. Now, the trouble, of course, being that unless you also do something to Russia, you're still going to wind up with, uh, at the very least, some sort of um, you know externally driven unification uh, because uh, they're going to get uh, they're going to get it from one side if they don't get it from the other. But I think you know slowing Napoleon's role uh, because uh, certainly as as Anglophones we recognize the part uh, involving Trafalgar and we don't you know particularly care that much about the Peace of Tilsit or the battles of uh, Wagram and uh, Berezina. Uh, except to the extent that they sound like delicious cheeses. They do sound like delicious cheeses, and that is a uh, another advantage to uh, this whole Middle Europeish uh, quality that Brett likes, is that everything winds up sounding like uh, some sort of uh, delicious uh, confectionery. Now, historians uh, sometimes argue, or certain historians argue, that the rise of national sentiment is basically a replacement for the unifying religious impulse that resulted when you had a single church, and that when uh, religious ideologies began to fragment, uh, and then that process accelerated during the Enlightenment when uh, certain elements of the intelligentsia departed from it entirely, that you then had national feeling as a substitute for your idea that all of Europe was united by a single religion. So uh, would it be possible to envision some sort of other unifying ideology that would allow uh, politics to remain fairly local, even though a sense of broader Europeanism buys into that ideology? Well, to an extent, that's sort of what I'm getting at when I say preserving things like the Holy Roman Empire as, as the methodology for uh, saving the uh, functioning tiny states on the ground because there is a larger allegiance that they owe, they don't feel like they need to uh, do dirt to the um, uh, to the whole river valley uh, to to get their own back. And so there's a there's a degree to which you have exactly the you know drama sized trouble without winding up in some sort of uh, continent wide cataclysm. Uh, I think that the notion that um, uh, national unification followed well basically the Reformation. Uh, as night the day is a little bit weird, given that you had national reforma- uh, national unification in, for example, Russia, where they had the same religious establishment for 800 years. So I think that there's something more to it than the notion that you know, with the absence of uh, the Pope uh, in charge, we all had to figure out what color we wanted our stamps to be. Well, you would also have to look at economic causes, and certainly as uh, economies become more complicated, the incentives for different economies to amalgamate becomes greater. And that, again, moves you away from having tiny little postage stamp states and having uh, bigger and bigger states. And that's why you're, you know, that that uh, the European fragmentation economically anyway has now reversed itself with the advent of the, the European Union. And you see that uh, what to me seems like sort of strange impulse to overcome national differences in favor of the economic is, is now in play again. Well, I mean, you know, it, we, you, you say this now at the moment at which the euro may be exploding and uh, the Catalan separatists have just won a fairly convincing election 
in Spain. So well, you know, I did say it seemed implausible to me. <laughs> yes, no, I mean certainly the the notion that uh, Europe has gotten anything right seems implausible just on the face of it. But I, I think that you know when you talk about economic uh, factors uh, driving uh, economies to to, uh, to to you know take down barriers, uh, political barriers, you can you can go to a degree with that. But again, keep in mind that the world of 1910 which is basically what what Brett wants to get back to, was more economically unified than even the Europe of today. Uh, There was, uh, and there was a fair amount of of the sort of um, uh, uh, charm that he's seeking uh, even at that point. uh, I, I think that, you know, the notion that an economy to be unified uh, has to be unified politically is itself a uh, symptom of that national feeling. I mean, obviously, if you look at the development of trade in medieval Europe in the 15th, uh, 13th century, there was little or no political unification connected to it, and Europe developed a fairly sophisticated uh, national economy. It might be that you want to be at one end of the continuum or the other, right? That you might want to be very unified uh, or very fragmented, because both of those things require uh, economic uh, cooperation, and sort of it's the middle state where you have... Uh, large national blocks that are uh, throwing up political barriers to economic movement of money and people that then uh, slows things down. To sort of go in a different direction from this, the other thing that I might uh, suggest uh, that would uh, maybe prolong this process would be to uh, strengthen the hand of one of the other powers with an interest in keeping our Europe fundamentally fragmented and inert. So... If you have a Bonapartist France on one corner and you have a slowly aggressive Russia, just as we have in our history on the other corner, or rapidly aggressive, depending on which specific decade you're talking about, it seems to me that you need at least a third party involved to keep putting their oar in and prevent the other two from uh, sort of dividing it up in, uh, into what, you know, absent uh, the, the rise of national Prussia, would probably have happened in uh, in in Central and, and uh, Eastern Europe. So if you strengthen the Turks, for example, you have one of their uh, manifold attempts at modernization uh, take off in the in the late 17th. So maybe Mehmed Ali, instead of becoming Khedive of Egypt, takes over uh, the entire uh, Ottoman Empire and begins a process of uh, modernization that. Uh, because we are interested primarily in Graustark and not in legitimate uh, economics uh, modeling, you 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 basically you replicate something like the Meiji Reformation in Japan, only you do it in Turkey, so that you have a, a country that you know even in the 1800s had a phenomenally larger uh, potential economic and military throw weight than it ever actually managed to exercise. You you could you could you could get some some nice going on with a three way contest, and then every time it looked like it was going to get settled, maybe the British could come in and screw with it because of their interest in preventing uh, a unification of power on the continent. Now, I always associate Ruritania's uh, not with swashbuckling, but with comedy and with light comedy. So uh, not only the Marx Brothers' uh, Duck Soup, which is a famous example, but uh, operettas and uh, basically forms of narrative that are trying to make politics seem quaint and silly, uh, whereas the, you know, the real politics of uh, Europe up until uh, very, very recently has uh, always been violent and nasty, and that part of it 
the desire for these Ruritanias is a an escapist impulse or a, a lightning impulse, as it were. Uh, what do you think is the appeal of, uh, from a setting standpoint, of having all of these tiny micro states jostling up against one another? I, I think that the interesting thing about what you say is that the Ruritanian impulse obviously begins in you know the 1860s when there were you were just about losing that Ruritania. Uh, as uh, as Brett mentions, 1866, you see the rise of Prussia and, and things are starting to fall away. But obviously, Anthony Hope writes uh, Prisoner of Zenda right around 1865 or, or thereabouts. Maybe it's even earlier. And you have that uh, that that sort of quality of, um, of of romanticizing the immediate past that you got when the Western was born literally as the frontier was closing in America. So I think that what drove them then was a sense of immediate loss of, of, you know, sort of, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could have our low stakes uh, 18th century world back in some way? And when we do it, we're doing it, I think, more as sort of an exotic tourist uh, type uh, thing. It, it would be fun to go see how, you know, old-timey people used to do old-timey things. And the great thing about Ruritania, as you mentioned, is that it, there is a fundamental comedic quality to it, and no matter how many uh, you know, evil barons and, and twin brothers there are, they're, they're not going to, you know, massacre 8 million people. They're just going to, you know, have marry the princess against her will or something. Right. It's sort of a signpost saying, don't worry, audience, this is not real history. You're not going to get hurt here. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe someone will fall into a dessert and there will be possibly a sword fight, but we're not going to engage with the, the darkness of actual events. Yeah. I, I think, and again, I was just watching the um, uh, the Joe Wright uh, version of Anna Karenina uh, uh, yesterday, and obviously, given that it's Anna Karenina, there is a train motif that runs through the whole uh, movie, but it occurred to me that the train meant something entirely different to Tolstoy than it means to us. I mean, when Tolstoy is writing Anna Karenina in the 1870s, the train is the model of, you know, modernity and progress and... Uh, capitalist society and everything that Tolstoy is is objecting to. And to us, a train is a darling, quaint thing that, you know, Joe Biden and nobody else thinks is a is a real transport alternative. Well, there may be people in other countries who like tra <laughs> no, I mean, trains. But, but, but even the trains that they like are not the sort of chuff-chuff, you know, wheels go round and round type trains. They're, you know, serious bullet trains uh, like in Japan. Exactly. And, and so the uh, semiotic quality of the trains in Anna Karenina has shifted, you know, in, you know, a little over a century. I think maybe we can look at the semiotic quality of the comic opera or the Ruritania in, in the same sort of way that, um, and obviously as we, as, as, as you mentioned, given my, uh, my natural and justifiable American uh, parochialism, I think Americans look at Ruritanias differently than, uh, you know, even British people do, and certainly uh, different than continental Europeans might. Uh, again, I think the, the Ruritania is primarily uh, written by someone from a country that's been unified for the last century. Uh, and obviously England is the oldest national state, certainly in Western Europe, and uh, got its uh, fragmenting well and truly out of the way pretty much by the 11th century. Right. You need a distance of either time or space or both in order to want to gingerbread up Europe in that way. Mm -hmm. And speaking of gingerbread, I think that may uh, bring us to our next segment. 
as Robin has hinted, the smell of uh, baking cookies wafts from the open door of the food hut. And uh, I suspect that this may be another subtle request from beloved sponsor uh, DorkTower.com, or it may simply be Robin's post-American Thanksgiving eagerness to talk about food. So, Robin, which is it? It is a a follow-on from our previous segment where I talked about the fact that if you uh, want to lead a luxurious life on not very much money, as most creative people have to do, or just if you want to be a a little bit uh, healthier and upscale your lifestyle, the best way to do that is to learn how to cook. And so I thought what we would do here is uh, cross our gamer instincts with our food hut instincts and throw back and forth, as both of us are uh, enthusiastic cooks, the little tips and tricks that we've learned over the years that uh, I wish that uh, Ken in Ken's time machine had materialized uh, when I first started uh, cooking as a, a younger guy and taught me these little tricks that took me a while to learn. So um, I'll throw one out to begin with, and we'll see uh, if we can how much of a segment we can fill with all of these little uh, ideas that we picked up over the years. And the first one, I will credit to Nigella Lawson. Uh, I'm not normally much of a watcher of uh, food programming or cooking shows. They bore me to death to watch food preparation occurring on television. But there's something about it when it's being cooked by Nigella Lawson. It just seems more interesting. There is a, a certain gloss and sheen to it, but the... Uh, the part that I keep expecting to happen in the downshift into funk music never seems to occur, so I, I flip <laughs> the channel. Um, but uh, one time while cruising through the channels, uh, uh, Nigella did initiate me, uh, as it were, into a, a, a trick, which is that if you have uh, leftover wine, uh, that uh, a great thing to do with that if you want to cook with wine, because wine as an ingredient can uh, zing up a huge plethora of different things from soups to pasta sauces to uh, anything you want to caramelize. If you want to caramelize onions and wine, that really adds a lot of pop to them. So what you can do is you can take an ordinary sandwich bag or freezer bag and pour what's left of your wine into that bag and pop it in the freezer and take it out at any time. And it keeps for a long time in that state and use it for cooking with. And uh, if you, you know, want to to borrow the phrase of another celebrity chef, kick anything up a notch, uh, adding some wine to it is a great way to do that. And what you can do is when it's frozen, if you want to just use a little bit of it, you can just easily break off a piece, put it in your pan, and uh, and you're good to go. In fact, I would recommend if you're in the habit of finishing all of your wine, uh, which a later tip might entail. <laughs> I was going to say leftover wine is one of those hilarious uh, concepts like um, uh, too many books that apparently happens to other people. Right. Well, uh, particularly, for example, with uh, with bubbly, with Prosecco or Champagne or whatever, if there's only two of you and you're not looking to get completely smashed, uh, that's something that you can you know put in a bag and freeze or whatever. But it may also be worth uh, looking at. There's so much cheap wine around these days that just mm-hmm. buying some in order to you know have one glass of it and freeze the rest as an ingredient makes a lot of sense because the uh, the food value of doing that the uh, the taste benefit as it were uh, really pays off and uh, the- it used to be theorized that you should only cook with wine that you would want to drink uh, but fortunately uh, several years back the New York Times uh, tackled this old saw and found out that it was nothing but a base canard and they uh, deliberately tracked down the worst possible cheapest wines they could find and then cooked with them and found out that 
the results were as perfectly delicious as uh, wasting fabulous bottles of wine and cooking with those, and they were indistinguishable from one another. And the tasting notes of some of these cheap wines were like, taste vaguely of art eraser, uh, <laughs> or, you know, uh, has a nose of bottom of shoe, but once you cooked with it, it was great. Now, these days, the quality of wine around the world is increasing in the fact that you might actually have quite a difficult time finding wine that tastes like gum eraser, but you can certainly find lots of cheap wine, and uh, having some frozen on hand to cook with is uh, well worth the uh, low cost of a, a cheap bottle. Um, I think that... Uh... Uh, not to spend this entire segment on your on your crazy notion of extra wine, I find that you can get the same effect of uh, wine that is not particularly good to drink without uh, going to the uh, the length of pouring things into plastic bags of just buying one of those big bottles of uh, Yellowtail or another you know of your uh, of, of your relatively cheap, relatively mediocre wine, and just you know you put the cork back into it. It's not going to be super drinkable if you sit it around for you know as much time as it would take to go through any other flavoring agent. But on the other hand, as you point out, that hardly matters. Uh, we might have to get the New York Times back on the case to see if uh, oxidizing over time affects the uh, the cooking flavor. Yeah. And, and certainly, you, you just may find it more convenient to freeze up some wine and stick it in the freezer than to have a uh, corked bottle sitting around on your uh, counter for weeks on end. But that's a, a storage issue that you will all have to resolve for yourselves. So, Ken, do you have a cooking tip in return? My cooking tip is that unless you are specifically trying to avoid flavor, and that happens certainly with, with things like if you're trying to um, uh, cook a delicately flavored vegetable and you want to really uh, taste every, uh, every nuance of it, uh, unless you're really trying to avoid flavor, I think cooking with peanut oil is almost always the way to go. It's got a really high smoke point, so you're never going to set yourself on fire. It doesn't turn greasy. It doesn't separate. And it, it adds a terrific, uh, a, I almost, almost want to say a crunch, although it's not really a crunch, but it, it tastes like crunch feels in a lot of ways to, to meat or to uh, virtually you know any kind of, uh, of stir-fry, anything that you do. I think peanut oil is, is phenomenal. And again, unless you want the specific fruitiness of olive oil, or the specific nothingness of vegetable oil. I think that uh, you know peanut oil should be your default um, uh, thing you cook in, and everything else uh, should be uh, uh, treated with uh, skepticism. Then, of course, the exception would be bacon fat, which is always the thing to do uh, if you're trying to uh, add a flavor to uh, a beef stew or or to uh, chicken or really to any kind of meat. I think that uh, uh, that uh, bacon fat really kicks uh kicks the door down on that although for some reason pork always works uh better with with peanut oil which may just be a pork and pork question um i have to say that i i'm an olive oil uh, person myself but uh, may be tempted by your peanut oil uh suggestion to uh, try that out now what's the uh, are we concerned about uh, calories here in our choice of oils is peanut oil not uh exceedingly decadent I don't have, I, I don't think that, you know, when you're talking about individual tablespoons, that the amount of calories is going to make a huge difference compared to, you know, whether or not you used butter or whether or not you um, uh, have an extra cookie at, after, or whether you drink uh, soda or wine with your dinner. I, I, I think that, um, you know, that level of, of micro concern about calories is, is beneath uh, a true gourmand such as myself. I mean, obviously, anyone who's got, uh, 
you know, lots of spare time to count things can go ahead and do it. But I, I don't see the point if we're talking about the aesthetics of the cooking. Well, for my next tip, I would like to go back to uh, the crazy concept of having wine left over. Uh, and <laughs> You're obsessed, man. I am obsessed, or at least the one thing led me to think of the other thing. The reason it is now harder for me to freeze wine is that I found a wine pump that actually works. Uh, <laughs> having struggled for years to uh, find some sort of uh, a device that would actually uh, allow you to pull the oxygen out of a bottle of wine and have it still be good a couple of days later, uh, I did finally find one called the VacuVin. Uh, that's V-A-C-U space V-I-N. And it uh, works like a charm. And uh, this has led me to uh, not have as much frozen wine in my freezer. There you go. See, I knew that there was some sort of solution to your problem that was uh, that, that we we could we could come together on. Well, the, the world does have an oversupply of wine at the moment, and it is our duty to uh, help them with that. I do what I can, man. Since you went back to wine, I'll go back to Greece. Uh, I find that uh, the bacon is it always done when you think that it needs another forty seconds. I have, I have almost never regretted taking the bacon off early. I mean, every now and again, you know, you take the bacon off super early. But if you're looking at the bacon and you're asking yourself, is the bacon done? The answer is yes. And what degree of crispiness is sought in your household, Ken? My household is fairly Catholic in the crispiness. Uh, we're we're not that much with the sort of floppy, softy bacon. And we prefer a bacon that if you hit it with a hammer, it does not shatter into a zillion pieces. But things, you know, in a broad band of, of tastiness are okay with us. I generally like it a little crispier than my lovely wife, but we are neither of us uh, insistent on that. Uh, at the risk of revealing something that probably everybody else knew for years and I was slow to catch up with, what I would want a Time Machine Ken to tell me is the fast way to caramelize onions. Ah. Uh, because there are uh, very few things, uh, ingredients that can use an onion in it that cannot use a caramelized onion. And a caramelized onion is a uh, wonderful garnish on sandwiches or uh, other on vegetables or whatever it is that you're on uh, virtually anything with uh, flavor in it indeed and yeah. so uh, perhaps combined with the idea of caramelizing them in wine uh, it took me a while to realize that once the uh, initial bit of oil that you cook them in has soaked through but they are not yet uh, nice and brown and soft and they begin to scorch that you can just keep them alive by adding water and letting the water soak into them. And that way you can get a caramelized onion much faster than a lot of the standard recipes, which uh, somehow seem to envision that you're going to want to watch onions simmer for 40 minutes. I have found uh, making French onion soup that my method of getting it done at some time relating to dinner is to use balsamic vinegar. A little of that, um, it's sort of the direction you want the caramelized onion to take you anyway. You can get bottles of decent balsamic vinegar that will not uh, set you back a mortgage payment. Um, although I have a bottle of super nice balsamic vinegar that I save for pouring over things where I want to actually taste balsamic vinegar. Um, but you put a little balsamic vinegar in the onion and it, uh, it, it goes exactly in the caramelizing direction. Um, I don't know that it works in every single instance because... There is definitely a, a flavor component to the balsamic that comes through. But, man, if you don't mind having a little balsamic in your whatever you're putting the caramelized onion on, it will speed the process up like nobody's business. My final tip for this segment uh, comes by way of the food writer Jeffrey Steingarten, who uh, writes for Vogue and I think is uh, a judge on uh, one of those uh, chef contest shows. 
And uh, he provided me with the secrets of always getting rice right. And that is simply to whatever the rice that you are going to cook, uh, soak it for half an hour beforehand, as you would basmati rice, and then uh, cook it in uh, enough water to uh, to cover it, and then just drain it afterwards so that you're no longer uh, struggling to uh, match the right amount of water to the right amount of rice. And this even allows you to quickly cook uh, brown rice, which until then uh, had a habit of defeating me utterly or winding up with crunchy rice while I still had the uh, all the rest of the food prepared. And so that simple trick of treating every rice as if it is basmati has always stood me in great uh, stead and uh, saved me lots of time and rice-related agony. Well, you should be saved from rice-related agony because there is no agony quite like it. Um, I think that uh, the, the tip that I uh, can sort of throw at that is the notion that you should just shell out for a pepper grinder. Um, get a pepper grinder, get a decent pepper grinder, get a nice one, and use it. The difference between ground pepper and not ground pepper is phenomenal. And if you buy an, a decent pepper grinder, you can buy really good pepper, and it's going to taste even better. Uh, and that uh, got uh, tipped off on me by the uh, economics blogger Megan McArdle, who also talks about food in her odd moments. And uh, she said something along the lines of, People will tell you you can get the same effect with uh, with with uh, pepper from the pepper shaker. Well, technically, you can get the same effect with ashes from the ashtray, <laughs> but I wouldn't recommend it. Yes, uh, ground pepper is not just something that uh, waiters do in order to uh, remind you to tip them. Uh, it is actually a whole different food product if your pepper is actual pep- actually peppery, uh, which you need a, a grinder for. So I will uh, second and third that suggestion. And uh, I think we've now dispensed a goodly number of uh, tips here in the food hut to uh, warm the heart of the uh, heart is Kavalik, uh, and uh, can therefore shimmy on down to our final hut for the show. Our final hut for the show is not a hut, but is in fact a corner. It is Conspiracy Corner. And this episode, uh, we're going to bounce off an article that was in uh, Wired magazine recently as part of their decryption issue. Uh, They looked at uh, the process of decoding a text from a 18th century secret society. This was called the Copial text, and uh, the uh, group that turned out to be behind it was, or was it, the Great Enlightened Society of Oculists? And was this, in fact, Ken, a conspiracy to commit ophthalmology? I think that it, like many things uh, in the 18th century, has all manner of little fan tods and extra rooms and corners stuck onto it that you don't notice. Uh, Freemasonry is more than just piling up bricks. Uh, When they talk about the architect of the universe, they are talking about more than just God. Uh, the uh, carbonari, we're not just burning charcoal. There's plenty of things that the oculists can do, and even without knowing that the eye has been a symbol of uh, mystical illumination and um, uh, mutual watchfulness at the very at the very best uh, for hundreds of years in that exact tradition, you know that they're up to something more than just uh, keeping the hoi polloi away from the uh, the, the cataract knife. So the, the angle into this story was the 
uh, use of language recognition software uh, that is, was sort of designed not even necessarily for decrypting codes, but for recognizing other languages and, and translating them without knowing the original language, and then applying it to uh, what turned out not to be a simple substitution cipher, but a more complicated substitution cipher where some of the symbols represented groupings of letters, basically. And once this was all decoded, uh, what, what did it reveal? It revealed the initiation ritual of the previously mentioned Society of Oculists, spangled about with uh, various uh, uh, exciting language um, of three-headed monsters and uh, the natural rights of man and other wonderful things of the 18th century. Who knows what it revealed, because the great thing about reading this code is we still don't know what the Oculists meant by it, much less what they were up to, whether they meant that or not. Right. So the surface meaning appears to be that they are, a, in fact, uh, ophthalmologists or surgeons who operate on the eye, and that they have an egalitarian viewpoint that allows uh, women to enter and become uh, ophthalmologists as well. And do we know from history that there were any number of women eye surgeons suddenly uh, springing up in the uh, 18th century? That seems uh, uh, somewhat unlikely and perhaps a uh, a code for uh, something uh, yet again. I, I, I certainly, in fairness, I am not the expert on the history of ophthalmology and perhaps the wave of female oculists appearing in mid-18th century Germany is legendary in that recondite area, but somehow I doubt it. I think that uh, the female uh, uh, entered members in this particular case, it's either a way of dealing with countries where property can be uh, inherited through the female line, or it is uh, some sort of coded message uh, further that is that either the the, the notion that, that women are, are equal members of the of the society of oculists is a uh, a statement of of sort of political principle or there is something that the female oculists do that involves a different coded document that we don't have right and, and the mention of political principle sort of suggests what the conclusion is that is drawn in the article which is that the uh, this was a there was a code on top of a ruse, and that basically, although it, the text purports to describe a professional association of eye surgeons, that in fact it is a way of disguising and preserving Masonic activity from a political culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to it because it has a revolutionary flavor to it and has driven it underground. Yeah, the the, the notion that you're disguising Masonry as something else or you're disguising something else as Masonry it goes around and around and around. Like I mentioned, obviously, the notion of the Freemasons began as as sort of disguised, um, uh, uh, the disguised political society as an artisans' guild. Although I think rapidly in the development of Freemasonry, it became apparent to everyone that they were simply cosplaying and not really uh, pretending to be Freemasons anymore. The uh, classic example of the code that is a code that is a code is, of course. Trithemius's uh, book on code breaking, that uh, the the Steganographia, which is concealed as a magical grimoire. And what period is this from? Uh, Trithemius is the uh, John D gets a copy and hand writes it out in two weeks in the 1550s. So Trithemius, I believe, is late 15th century. But the notion that 
codes are so dangerous that you are dis- disguising them as a magical grimoire during the period of the Great Witch Hunt is it, it's it's it sort of puts the code in the right perspective. Yes, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's. I'd rather that you uh, thought that I was consorting with the devil and burned me at the stake on that basis than if you realize what I'm really up to, which is political change. Right, which which is uh, throwing all of you guys out of a job. And so uh, I guess we might want to step back a step and put in perspective the growth of the secret society as, as an idea and where it uh, began and, and where it has ended up. So where do we see the first uh, glimmerings of the secret society? Is it with the Masons? Well, obviously, the question of what is a secret society uh, lies under any question like that. Uh, to an extent, you know, Christianity began as a secret society, and before that, you know, the worshippers of Dionysus were a secret society. Uh, there were societies that were maintained as a secret by the larger society, like the Eleusinian Mysteries or things like of that ilk. And uh, you have sort of a varying attitude, depending on who's in charge of the city-state, to that kind of uh, outsider religious uh, influence. But the secret society, as we understand it, with uh, handshakes and and uh, all-seeing eyes and ciphers and all of that, pretty much starts up in Europe with the Freemasons. And it, you can get sort of pushback back and forth because you begin with the collapse of the knightly orders, which is where uh, middle-class people and third sons had gone before, uh, as gunpowder is driving the knight off the battlefield, the point of knighthood becomes ever more decorative. And I think that uh, there's a certain sort of, uh, oddly enough, a certain middle-class pragmatism to secret society membership that if you can't you know, actually swing a sword at a painim, you can't really be a knight in any meaningful fashion. So you have to be an imaginary pretend knight. And so you have things like the, the esoteric Templars or the, or the Order of the Golden Fleece, things of that nature that are... Uh, spiritual knighthoods and spiritual brotherhoods, and that's the kind of thing that you would seal with handshakes and coded manuscripts. And that begins at roughly the point at which you start getting a bourgeoisie that is capable of uh, setting any kind of rules uh, for its own behavior and then immediately starts reaching for more. And again, you get you get pushback, is the 17th century, which is the, the beginning of masonry in Britain. And so today, the whole idea of the secret society has sort of come down to us in two ways. One, it sort of survives as community service organizations. Uh, you sort of associate that now with uh, uh, small town uh, businessmen. And you have a, a vast lore of conspiracy theory that uh, concerns uh, particularly the Masons and you know, whoever else you want to add as a layer under the Masons. But there were times in history, certainly, when they were considered a, a big threat, and not only a threat to a monarchical order, but in the 19th century, a threat to the American democratic order. Yeah, the, um, I mean, the, the thing about a bunch of uh, secret societies, especially secret societies that do have, uh, and, you know, a, a, even a theoretical interest in altering society, is that at some point, someone's going to take that seriously and start responding uh, in a rational fashion by trying to root you out um, uh, uh, completely. And that happened uh, certainly to the Jesuits when they were a secret society in Protestant countries in Europe. And then it happened in Catholic Europe as it became rapidly borne in on the Catholic potentates. The Jesuits weren't any much fonder of them than they were of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, you got the same effect happening about uh, the same time even 
to the Freemasons. Uh, you saw them get banned and uh, sequestered. It stopped being a respectable thing. And since meetings were, in theory, anonymous, you could uh, anyone could be present at one. Uh, the, the you know the king's brother who's up to no good was uh, the classic concern in France that uh, that, that some uh, member of the monarchy would be would be uh, getting up to up to trouble uh, under the guise of Freemasonry. In the rest of the world, generally Freemasonry was seen as a uh, methodology by which some sort of unsavory ideology was being imported under the cover of uh, respectability. And in America, uh, George Washington, uh, at the very least, found, felt it important to write to some of his correspondents to say that, yes, he was very aware of the fact that in France, the Illuminati had undermined Freemasonry, but as America's uh, master mason, he was constantly on the watch for any Illuminati problems that we might have here. And then, of course, you have the anti-Masonic party that uh, briefly uh, has uh, an effect in the fairly confused uh, political uh, atmosphere of the 19th century. And now uh, you have, to an extent, people who are worried about some sort of covert uh, movement amongst uh, evangelical Christians. You, you see people worrying about various prayer breakfasts and the dominionist movement uh, and implying darkly that they are um, uh, but a stone's throw from grasping control of the Republican Party. And you have a, a mirror version of that with the you know fringe of people who are... Uh actually concerned that somehow uh, the Democrats are going to introduce Sharia law into America. Yeah, although I think that we, we so far don't have anything on, on the right that matches the good old John Birch ability to say, well, you're a communist. And uh, certainly there's no shortage of people saying that Obama is a communist. But until we really decide if the Muslim Brotherhood or um, uh, the, you know, the Hashishin or something are our new... Um, uh, uh, evil uh, uh, society of bad guys, we're going to be stuck with sort of one-off retail accusations on, on that front. Yeah, it just isn't getting uh, enough traction because right. uh, it may be too ludicrous at this point even for conspiracy theory. Well, it, it, would, it, it would belong to that section of conspiracy theory that I suspect is done as either the symptom of a genuine derangement or as performance art and not in the sort of thing that, you know, most times affects uh, the, the the politics of of even a local city council, much less uh, great nations. Right. It's a, it's a proxy, as you suggest, for you know the the good old accusations are gone, and and people are groping for old ones to map onto the old structure. And uh, apart from your nutty uncle's email forwards, that isn't really uh, growing much grass, as it were. So, what can we take from the history of secret societies to import into our gaming and our fiction? Well, the great thing about uh, the history of secret societies is that it's full of a bunch of people whose basically entire fantasy life revolved around coming up with reasons why they were scary and dangerous, and then simultaneously uh, their enemies coming up with the same reasons why they were scary and dangerous. So you would have um, uh, people uh, su suggest that uh, we are the heirs to the Templars who were such a threat to the church that they had to be um, uh, illegally uh, prorogued by the Pope and the King of France, and the Pope and the King of France saying, you know what, these guys are going around saying they're Templars. I think they may be conspiring to, to overthrow us using Satanism and the head of Baphomet. And you have a beautiful sort of a, a house of mirrors in which whichever side you place the good guys in your gaming set 
you have a pre-established uh, propaganda mill and a pre-established uh, aesthetic that says that the uh, that that everything going on is badass and exciting and awesome. It's like uh, having uh, overwrought background music in in everything that you do. Only instead of overwrought background music, it's overwrought uh, uh, rituals and titles and threatens and threats to uh, hang people underneath bridges. And, and as so often the case, all you have to do is take outlandish claims and treat them as true, and you're living in a uh, fantastical version of our reality. Yeah, I think that the other great thing about about uh, secret societies is that they really are an awful lot of places that you wouldn't normally have suspected them to be. I mean, the example of a secret society of ophthalmologists, you know, right there is is hilarious, but also it, I think it gives you pause. I mean, when you think, okay, let's say there is a secret society of ophthalmologists, does this mean that there's a secret society of podiatrists? You know, and if, and if there is, do they know the way to sort of push on your foot to sort of turn off your brain and program you to do stuff? Or do they, you know, um, uh, collect the, uh, the shoes of, of famous people and use the, the, uh, the, the leftover mana in them to control them like voodoo doll style. I mean, there's, there's a, 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 the notion that everywhere you look, there could be some larger, more exciting story going on. I mean, obviously Umberto Eco, uh, takes it from, Suspense to Parody and Beyond in Foucault's Pendulum, so read that and you'll know everything that you can do with Secret Society pretty much. But I think that that is, it's a great way to look at the world. And, and when you look at, uh, you know, whether it's the advertising in an airport lounge or whether you look at some sort of, you know, activity that you are, uh, suspicious with, uh, suspicious of or wish to involve in your game, moon landings and such, you can start finding people who are in the Freemasons with this one guy or who it turns out actually were the heir to some lost throne, or at least someone said that they were, that kind of thing. As a plot device, it's a great way to connect up people uh, who you want in your story who would not otherwise be connected. And that's, of course, one of the great hallmarks of paranoid fantasy is that everyone is out to get you. And if everyone is a member of a, or anyone could be a member of a secret society, that can turn anyone in your ordinary environment into someone who's just a uh, gesture away from uh, pulling out the straight razor. A good example of that is uh, in the um, occult Nazi book that I was uh, writing uh, a month or so ago. Uh, I was looking at a entirely new to me a program to accumulate occult knowledge, and it was run by Ernst Kaltenbrunner, who was the guy who ran uh, the SD after Heydrich, basically. And I was thinking, gosh, it would be interesting if he was doing this uh, as sort of a, a last-ditch attempt to restore the, the old Thule Bruderschaft, the guys who were, you know, the hidden hand behind Hitler in your more lurid uh, texts. And I'm looking at stuff about Ernst Kaltenbrunner, and his mistress is... Uh, a woman who is the Countess von Westarp. And then the name rung a bell, and I went back and I looked, and it turned out that the recording secretary of the Thule Gesellschaft was the Countess Heila von Westarp. And this uh, Kaltenbrunner's mistress was her niece. So when you talk about, you know, anyone can be a member of anything, or there's always a connection, it turns out, yes, indeed, Ernst Kaltenbrunner could... You, you can plausibly claim that he's getting you know, Thule Bruderschaft uh, propaganda in his pillow talk, and that that's why he suddenly starts paying attention to the occult after a career of basically being a brutal and effective thug. Well, I can hear all across podcast land our listeners thinking to themselves, 
Ken is writing a book on Nazi occultism, uh, which indeed we will have to delve into uh, uh, probably on multiple occasions as that went its way uh, toward publication. But also that suggests that once again, uh, the Godwin's Law of Podcasting is as soon as you mention Nazi occultism and you've talked for nearly an hour, it's time to end your podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com, where you may cursor the hems of our virtual raiments. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff. <laughs>